Take our Bibles now, if you would, please, and we'll open them to Ephesians chapter 2. And this evening, we are ready to begin this second chapter. And it's really, it really has been a blessed privilege to be able to preach on the great doctrines that we talked about in the first chapter. And uh, there are really some great truths there, but there are also some great truths that we find in the second chapter. And I know that we're going to have a good study as we go through this. But chapter 1 speaks about the supreme greatness and the glory of God and salvation. And, and how God is just higher than all. And then when we come to the second chapter, we actually learn about the real depths of depravity of the human heart. And it's only when you put those two things side by side do you really begin to understand who you are and who God is. Now, the message that I'd like to preach tonight, I've titled, I Just Dropped In to See What Condition My Condition Is In. Some of you older folks might recognize that as the title from a a Kenny Rogers song from about 40 years ago. I don't claim to be a Kenny Rogers fan, and I have no idea what he was even talking about when he wrote that song. I don't know anything about it, but I like the title of it because I think it's very appropriate for us, for us to understand what condition our condition is in. And the problem with most of the world today, even among Christians, is that people really don't understand what condition our condition is in. Well, tonight we're going to drop in on the Apostle Paul, and he's going to tell us very clearly what condition our condition is in. So we want to read from this second chapter of Ephesians. So if you'd stand, please, for the reading of God's Word. We'll look and see what Paul says about our condition, starting in chapter 2, verse number 1. And here Paul writes, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. If you have a pencil tonight, you really ought to underline the word dead there. It's very, very important, and you ought not to forget that he says dead in trespasses and sin. Wherein in time past she walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to preach your word tonight. We ask you, Lord, to to open our eyes to your word. Help us to understand what you'd have us to know tonight from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A few weeks ago, I preached three messages on the great passage of Scripture, John 3, 16. And If you recall, I told a story about a young man from India who found just a scrap of paper that had been torn out of a Bible. And on this scrap of paper were simply the words, For God so loved the world that he gave. And that was the only thing that was on the piece of paper. And this young man determined that he was going to uh, find out at all costs what those words meant. And so he went and he talked to some uh, people, some people in his family, some friends of his, but he was never able to find out exactly what that meant from those people. Finally, he came across an American missionary who was able to tell him what the rest of that verse said. And of course, we all know what the rest of the verse says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And when I was preaching on that subject, I told you that if all that we had in the Bible was from the Bible, is John 3.16, just John 3.16, that the words of that verse would be enough to save every single person in all of planet Earth. We just need that one verse. But I would tell you tonight that if 
uh, only one portion of the scripture that we would have, if that portion was Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that would not be enough to save everyone on planet earth, but it would surely do this. It would plunge every single person in this world into the great depths of despair. And really, whether you realize it or not, the reason that Paul wrote these words was that for that very purpose. It was to bring us to the point of despair where you and I would see that we have absolutely no hope in ourselves, that we would come to understand the condition that we were in. Now, tonight, I want to show you, if you've dropped in to see what condition your condition is in, that without Jesus Christ, your condition is bleak. Your condition is terrible, and I might even say that your condition is hopeless and impossible. And we need to really understand the messages, the message of these first three verses that Paul gives us in Ephesians chapter 2. Now, this evening, we're only going to look at the first part of this message, and of course, that means that there will be a part number two. But I'd like for us just to take a moment to look a little bit further down the road to a future message that I want to preach, and that message is about verse number four, because these verses that we've just read are in preparation for verse number four. And when you come to verse four, Paul uh, tells us this. He says, but God, and he uses the word, but God. We've been plunged into despair in verses one through three, but then Paul writes verse number four where he says, but God, and that's the thing that changes it all. I mean, that turns everything around. And those, that verse in verse number four will actually lift us up from the despair that we find in verses one through three. But that's another message. And tonight we want to deal with these first three verses. And so verses one through three tell us what condition our condition is in. Now I want to begin tonight with the first truth that Paul speaks about in verse number one. In verse one, Paul writes, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. And I want you to notice that in your King James Version, that these words, hath he quickened, are in italics. And by now, everyone should understand or know that when you see italics in the King James Version, that means that those words have been supplied by the translators for clarity. And so if you were to take those words out of it, it would actually read, and you who were dead in trespasses and sin. And I want to make that the uh, that truth the first point of the sermon tonight. What condition is your condition in? Well, let's put this in the past tense because I think I'm preaching mostly to Christians this evening, but let's discover where we come from. And here's the statement that Paul makes. Here's the past tense statement that we can make. You were dead in sins. And Paul's statement to the Ephesian Christians is, is very straightforward. I mean, this is unmistakable. He says, you were dead in trespasses and sin. And so he doesn't say that you were sick. He doesn't say that you are unhealthy. And he doesn't even say that you could recover. All that he says is, you are dead. And that's a very plain statement. And yet the majority of the Christian world today does not actually believe that statement. The majority of the Christian world and the majority of preachers today have a lot of trouble interpreting that statement. And they are convinced that Paul did not mean to say what he actually said. And Paul didn't mean to write this. And they are convinced that the word dead must mean something less than actually dead. Now one of the 
favorite things that many preachers do is to qualify this word dead as if partially dead or, or nearly dead or half dead would be an adequate translation of the words that Paul gives us or a reasonable explanation. But I don't think that we can take this any other way than exactly as he says it, we were dead. Now, if you go to the funeral home, you don't look at the body of someone in a casket and you don't wonder how dead they are. And you are not going to go to the undertaker and try to convince him or even ask him if this person is only half dead. If you were to ask a question like that, he would think that you were crazy. I mean, you don't have any doubt that this person is dead. And you don't have any expectations at all that there's going to be any life, exhibit of life in that person. And so you don't expect that this person will suddenly raise up or lift his arm up and pull the casket lid down because there's a draft in the room. And you don't expect him to turn over in the casket to get more comfortable. No, you know he's dead, so there is no way that he can move. There's no life there. Now, the dictionary defines dead this way. It says, a person is dead when breathing and heartbeat have ceased and cannot be revived. At least five physical functions must have ceased before death can be established. These five functions are heartbeat, response to stimuli, breathing, reflexes, and brain activity. Now, folks, when a person is physically dead, we all understand that all of the vital signs have ceased. There is no ability to respond to stimuli. The heart can't beat. Uh, There's total inability for that person to respond. And that definition of dead is exactly what Paul tries to impress upon us about our spiritual condition. So you see, there is no heartbeat of the spirit. There is no function of the spirit. There is no response to spiritual stimuli. There's no spiritual reflex and there's no spiritual brain activity. And so in short, we can say that we are totally unable to respond with any spiritual movements. And folks, that is exactly the reason why it is impossible for a dead person to respond to the gospel of Christ. Now, I'm not talking about physically dead. I'm talking about a spiritually dead person. That's why it's impossible for him to respond to the gospel of Christ. Now, I want to make that the, the first sub-point of this first statement tonight. The first point here is the spiritually dead do not respond to gospel stimulus. A few weeks ago, I preached on the power of God in salvation, and I showed you then that it takes God's power to bring a dead, lost person to life. I mean, it takes his power before a person can actually believe the gospel. If you remember, we went to the Old Testament and we looked at Ezekiel chapter 37, and we talked about the story of how Ezekiel was told to preach to the dead, dry bones. Then we looked in the New Testament at the example of Lazarus and how that Lazarus was dead for four days and Jesus came and spoke to him and brought him back to life. And the question that I asked then was, did the bones hear first or were they brought to life first? And did Lazarus hear first or was he brought to life first? Well, the obvious answer is they were dead, and so they had to be brought to life first before they could respond. And that is exactly what Paul is telling us in Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you hath he quickened, or made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sin. And so you were spiritually dead, but you've been brought to spiritual life. So what that tells us is that without question, God must move first on a sinner. A lost sinner is dead spiritually. And no matter how long and how hard that we may preach to that person, they will never come to life. 
unless God's Holy Spirit quickens them and brings them to life in order they may hear the gospel and believe the gospel. So uh, most Christians today, actually, though, will not accept that statement. Uh, Most Christians and most preachers will not accept the statement that I've just made. They won't accept Paul's statement because they are convinced that dead is not really dead. And so they preach and they believe that as the gospel is preached, that salvation is simply reduced to a simple decision-making process. It's merely a decision that you will either receive or reject the message. But I want you to notice what Paul says our condition is. We are dead And hearing and believing the gospel cannot be reduced to simply a decision of man's will. That's impossible. The spirit has to be operable first because we don't have any power to make any spiritual movements. Now, I would have to say that that is a fairly natural conclusion from reading what Paul says in these verses. And in fact, folks, that is what Baptists have believed in time past. Baptists have believed and taught this doctrine. And this doctrine is called the uh, the doctrine of total inability. Total inability. And I want to make a note, you to make a note of that on your listening sheet tonight because this is very important. The Bible teaches the total inability of the sinner. Now, what are we talking about? Well, of course, we're talking about sinners. They're dead in trespasses and sin, and that means that they are unable to respond to spiritual stimuli. Now, I want to show you for the next few minutes that this is the position of Baptists in times past. Seems almost incredible, but it's now three years since I first preached on the Brian Baptist Church Statement of Faith. Time flies when you're having fun, doesn't it? But it's been three years now, and our statement of faith is nearly an exact replica of the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith of 1833. And this New Hampshire Confession is actually a a reduced confession or a smaller form of uh, Baptist confessions that date much, much further back. But before we talk about that, I want you to understand something, and that is that no confession... No confession of faith is the actual authority for our beliefs. The final authority for what we believe is God's Word, and only God's Word. But what Baptists have done is to summarize our beliefs about the Bible, and we've written those things down into a confession of faith. And it just so happens that the New Hampshire Confession of Faith is the most popular confession of faith for Baptists in America. In fact, the uh, Southern Baptist Convention, who, com- who is the largest uh, body of Baptists in America, uh, formulated their statement of faith, which is the abstract of principles, chiefly from the New Hampshire Confession. Most of the independent Baptist churches in America use this confession, and also a great deal, most of the uh, fundamental churches, fundamental Baptist churches, also use the New Hampshire Confession. Uh, I looked up uh, the website of one of the hardest-hitting fundamental churches that I know of, and if I called their name, you would know it, and their statement of faith reads almost identically to our statement. Now, the article in the Statement of Faith that actually addresses what I'm speaking about tonight is article number 9, titled, Of Grace and Regeneration. Now, I want to read you the text of this article. 
We believe that in order to be saved, sinners must be regenerated or born again. That regeneration consists in giving a holy disposition to the mind, that it is affected in a manner above our comprehension by the power of the Holy Spirit in connection with divine truth, so as to secure our voluntary obedience to the gospel, and that its proper evidence appears in the holy fruits of repentance and faith and newness of life. Now, there are three very important statements in that article that uh, fit perfectly with what Paul is speaking about in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. And the first one is that regeneration is effected in a manner above our comprehension by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want you to note this statement. Regeneration is beyond our understanding through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, that does not mean that we are are saved without understanding the gospel. What this means is, is that we are born again by a process that's not physical in nature. And what happens to the mind is something that is affected by the Holy Spirit, and we don't exactly understand how that process works. And the reason that we don't understand it is because it is a godly process. It is a spiritual process, and it's not a part of of the natural makeup of man. And so when it says that it's beyond our understanding, of course we understand the gospel, but we don't know how God actually takes that gospel message and uses, us, uses that to regenerate us. We just know that he does, but we don't know how he does it. Now the second statement that we need to notice is the Holy Spirit in connection with divine truth secures our voluntary obedience to the gospel. So the second thing that we would note, the Holy Spirit changes our natural disposition of unbelief to belief. You see, we are dead in trespasses and sins, and so our natural disposition is that of unbelief. And we don't change from unbelief to belief without the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's why uh, when I preach, one person may be saved, And when I preach, another person may not be saved. And the reason that one is saved and one is not saved is because the Holy Spirit has changed that person's natural disposition from one of unbelief to belief. And so you can see by this that this is not an act of man's will. It is an act of God's will. And so when God effectually works in that person's heart in order that they will believe, then that's what you call irresistible grace. That's when God changes the will of a person and brings him to the place of salvation. And the only reason that God works on the will and changes the will, which is necessary, is to bring him to the place that he will believe. And that's why we call it irresistible grace. Now, the third statement that's made in this article is in the last phrase where it says it's proper evidence, and the it refers to regeneration. Regeneration, it's proper evidence, appears in holy fruits of repentance and faith and newness of life. And so the third part that we notice here, regeneration results in repentance and faith. Now, the order of that statement is very crucial to this argument because regeneration is not the result of repentance and faith. Regeneration or repentance and faith are the fruits of regeneration. Now, this article makes this very clear, and that's exactly what Paul is saying in Ephesians. But that is not what most fundamental Baptists believe. Now, even though their statement of faith says this, the official statement of faith says this, yet they don't believe it. 
Now, when I preached on this subject three years ago, this was not the bombshell that upset the apple cart. It was the bombshell that blew up the apple cart when we started preaching what the statement of faith actually says. And the statement of faith is really an accommodation for what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. So I want to take just a moment to tie these things together so you can see how this works. Now, Paul, first of all, spoke about the election of individuals by the Heavenly Father before the foundation of the world. And the elect ones are the ones that are regenerated. You see, you do not have any problem with election at all if you understand that regeneration logically comes before repentance and faith. In other words, this, if you understand that man is dead in trespasses and sin, and he has no movement towards God without the Holy Spirit working first, then you also understand that God at some point has made a decision about which persons that he's going to call to life. I mean, that only makes sense. A decision has to be made. For example, when Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus, and he said, Lazarus, come forth. Who came forth? Did everybody in the cemetery come out? No. Just Lazarus, because Jesus was speaking specifically to Lazarus, to that particular person. And so when the gospel is preached to all men, who are the ones that come? Only those that have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Remember when we talked about Lydia, that Paul preached to a whole group of women there, but only Lydia does it say that the Lord opened her heart. When Paul and Barnabas spoke to um, the Jews and the Gentiles in Acts chapter 13, who was it that believed? Well, the Bible says those that were ordained to eternal life believe. And so we see here that the ones who are regenerated are one and the same with those who the Father has elected before the foundation of the world. But then Paul goes on in his teaching and he speaks about Jesus who redeems us. And in the same context of, of talking about, uh, about uh, God electing people before the foundation of the world, he speaks about the redeemed ones that are in verse number 7. I'm talking about chapter 1 now, verse number 7. So who are those redeemed ones? They are the same ones that are chosen. Then what happens to those that are redeemed? Well, they're brought to life by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they express their repentance from sin and their faith in Jesus Christ. And so these are the very same people that when you come to chapter 2, verse number 1, that Paul says are dead. They were dead in trespasses and sin, but this is what's happened to them. Now what happens next? They're brought to life and they're sealed by the Holy Spirit. And so they have God's personal guarantee of eternal salvation. So the eternal salvation of every believer is tied to the fact that he was elected before the foundation of the world. And folks, there is no greater proof for eternal security of the believer than this one thing. And that is our election in God before the foundation of the world. That guarantees that we could never lose our salvation. Now, having said all of those things, you ought to be able to see why it's so important to get this order right. You see, if you place repentance and faith before regeneration, then you've opened the door to this, and that is to deny the peculiar work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. And in fact, that's what many people have done. That's what most of the fundamentalists do. They change the order of this without changing their statement of faith. And so what they do is actually deny what they officially believe. This is exactly what takes place. Now, before I go further on this, we need to clear something else up. And, and that is that we would suppose that if regeneration precedes repentance and faith, 
then is there a time lapse between the time that a person is regenerated and the time that he has repentance and faith? And if there is a time lapse or if there is an allowance for a time lapse, then that would mean that you could actually have someone who has been regenerated and they actually have not yet expressed repentance and faith. So you have a regenerated person who has not yet trusted in Christ. That's what would happen if you had a time lapse between the two. So how do you solve that dilemma? Well, what we do is we solve it by stating the logical order and we tell what the chronological order of this is. We tell about which is the logical and the chronological order of regeneration, repentance, and faith. Now, those of you that are in the Sunday morning forum class, you know that we've discussed this many times. And the logical order must be regeneration, repentance, and then faith. And the reason that's the logical order is because you could never have a dead person believing. You couldn't have a dead person repent and trust Christ because they're dead. They don't have any spiritual movement. So the logical order has to be regeneration comes first. The person is quickened to life. Then they express repentance and faith. But what do we do about the chronological order? Well, actually, there is no chronological order. In other words, regeneration, repentance, and faith occur at exactly the same time. So you don't have a lapse of time. So every person that is regenerated has repentance and faith, Always, and every person that has repentance and faith is always regenerated because they occur at the same time. So remember that. Write it down on your listening sheet. Regeneration, repentance, and faith occur at the same time. And you might think that I'm just up here spouting words and talking about things to fill up time, but this is extremely important to our understanding properly how salvation comes to us. And this is why that we emphasize the fact, I said, underline the word in verse number one, we were dead. And because we are dead, this has to be the way that it works. Otherwise, you are responsible for your salvation rather than God. Now, so here's our condition then. We are dead in trespasses and sin, and we can never approach God. We can never believe in God. We can never do a righteous act until God has called us to life. Now, let's go back to the text in verse number 1, and I want to spend the rest of the time talking about the problem of sin. In the next lesson, we're going to expand upon this, but now we need to consider this point, and that is that sin is debilitating. Paul says we are dead in trespasses and sin. And salvation is from sin. And one of the reasons that people are so mixed up on this is they do not understand the problem of sin. We are not spiritually dead because we sin. We sin because we are spiritually dead. And we can never take care of the problem of sin until we take care of the problem of spiritual death. That's where we have to work. Now, people have this whole thing backwards. And so they try to take care of sin without regard to what condition our condition is in. Now, that's just like going to a dead corpse and saying to a dead corpse, you know what you really need to do? You you really need to eat. And if you would eat, you would feel so much better. And the reason that you won't eat is because you won't open your mouth. No, the reason he doesn't eat is because he's dead. The underlying issue is the problem of death, and that's what has to be dealt with. So what people tried to do then is to redefine the problem of sin, and what we end up with is a very mixed-up message, and the message is really not biblical at all. 
So now I want to give you three ways that the world wants to solve the problem of sin. They don't want to look at the underlying problem, but they want to solve the problem of sin. How do they do this? Well, number one is the psychological solution. The psychological solution to the problem of sin. And the psychological approach is that sin is not really sin. Sin is a disease. Sin is a condition that we have. Sin is is a mindset that we have so that there's no one who's actually responsible for what they do. They just have a disease, and this disease, they can't help it because they've got the disease. A few years ago, there was a study about teenager, teenage rebellion, and uh, this study said that the reason that teenagers are rebellious is because there's a chemical in their brain that makes them that way. So teenagers can't be held responsible for their actions because they've got this disease, they've got a condition, and that's what makes them do what they do. A few years ago, right down here the road, down the road in, in San Francisco, a supervisor murdered another supervisor and uh, the mayor, George Moscone, is that his name? Did I say that right? Uh, the, su- the supervisor murdered these two people. And do you remember what the defense was? The Twinkie defense, exactly right, the Twinkie defense. Junk food is what made this person irrational. And so the Twinkie defense was born. And the ruling was that this junk food caused diminished capacity. Now, I think that's what you can expect in all of San Francisco. The whole city suffers from diminished capacity. But what about... But that's what we come up with. We've redefined the problem. Then we've got this thing about alcoholism. What do they say about that? Alcoholism is a disease. And so the person who is an alcoholic, he can't help himself because he has a disease. And so he's not responsible for what he does. Well, the root problem of the whole thing is never attacked. The root problem is we're dead in sins. And you have to deal with that issue first. Now, the second way that people try to uh, solve the problem of sin is the self-esteem solution. Now, our problem is we have low self-esteem. And folks, do you know this, that the uh, self-esteem thing about self-esteem has actually become the gospel itself for many people. I mean, if you could just raise self-esteem, then people will be all right. I want you to listen to how Robert Schuller redefines this problem. Most of you know who Robert Schuller is? He's the one who has the hour of power from the Crystal Cathedral in Southern California. But listen to what, how he redefines sins. Here's what he said. The notion of sin is psychological self-abuse. It is an act or thought that robs myself or another human being of his or her self-esteem. Once a person believes he is an unworthy sinner, it is doubtful if he can really honestly accept the saving grace Uh, uh, saving grace God offered in Christ Jesus. Classic theology has erred or made a mistake in its insistence to be God-centered and not man-centered. And so the real problem is we just feel too bad about ourselves. And what we really need to do is we need to keep our chins up. Uh, We need to put a smiley sticker on our foreheads and go around and tell everybody God loves you and that'll solve all of our problems. But is that the picture that we find in Ephesians 2 verse 1? It's not. Our problem is not lack of self-esteem. Our problem is spiritual death. And we have to deal with spiritual death. Now the third way that people try to solve this problem, and this is the one that's really popular among evangelicals today. The third way is the church growth solution. The church growth solution. You see, the church growth movement has decided that they can solve the problem this way. The proponents of the church growth theories look at it this way, that every churchgoer is a consumer and the church is that person's 
provider. And so it is, the, it is the job of the church to be all things to all people and to appease everyone at all costs. And so if the churchgoer is the consumer and the church is the provider, then what we have to do is keep people coming back to church by any means possible. We just make sure they'll come to church. And so what's happened? How do churches do this? Well, they've decided that whatever it takes, that's what we'll do. The end justifies the means. Whatever it takes to fill this place up, that's what we're willing to do. We'll do whatever it takes to get there. And so what do we do? Well, we stop talking about sin. We ignore the depravity of man. We no longer preach about hell because the consumer doesn't want those things. The consumer does not want to hear about sin, death, and hell. So we won't preach that. Now, folks, do you think that you can drive to the purpose-driven church... And you can hear them preach that man is sinful and God is holy. And do you think that you'll hear them preach that men are in rebellion against God and that we are inherently depraved and that we are unable to save ourselves and there is no hope for us and we're dead sinners, spiritually dead? Do you think you'll hear them preach that? You won't hear them preach that. Remember a few weeks ago, I told you about this Tom Brokaw interview that he had with this whiz-bang pastor in Denver, this huge church there. And what did that man plainly say? He plainly said, we do not preach on hell anymore because we want to focus on a positive message. And so that's what they've done. Churches have begun to fill the church up. That's the only goal. And however we have to get there, that's what we'll do. But folks... I'm not talking about filling up the church with unregenerate, lost-as-goose-dead sinners. That's not what we're talking about. I'm not talking about getting enough people together so that we can run our social programs and we can have our soup kitchen and we can have a softball and a basketball team. I'm not talking about that. And you, you, you people, I mean, you, maybe you really don't even realize this. How many people visit our church and not one time, not one time do they ever ask what we believe? They never want to know if we're Bible believers. What they want to know is how many programs do we have. They want to know what kind of social events will we have. What have we got for them and their kids? And their questions are, how much fun is your church? And, and will you, uh, do you have a band in the church? And will you have a dance on Saturday night? And that's what they're interested in. I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in anything but the real purpose of the church, and that's to take old, dead, lost sinners and give them the gospel of Christ. And that's what the job of the church is. So when we decide this, then we decide that we are going to declassify sin and death Uh, We're going to declassify that as the problem. When we tell people that psychologically you are not responsible for your actions, when we make excuses for their sins, when we tell them that they're all right just the way they are, what they really need is they just need Jesus to clean them up just a little bit. And when we tell them all of those things and we try to be a provider for these consumers and give them exactly what they want, Exactly what they want is not what we want to offer them. They will not want the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because they're dead. D-E-A, dead. Spiritually dead. And so they'll never want those things. You can't expect that to happen. Now, what the gospel of Jesus Christ and these verses in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 are doing is driving us to the place that we understand there is no hope for us at all but the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the only hope that we have. And the biblical message is we will not escape the consequences of sin unless we believe in Jesus Christ. And that comes through the power of the preached word, through the gospel of Christ. 
Now, folks, I don't want to hear anything at all. I don't want this stuff about what I have done and about what I can do. And don't tell me that believing in Jesus is, is just a simple whim of the fancy and I can take that or uh, take it at will. I can believe it if I want to or reject it if I want to. Don't tell me that because what I need to hear is this, that I am dead, just like Paul said, I'm dead in pres- trespasses and sin and unless God comes to me and God speaks to me, I will be forever dead and I will spend eternity in the fires of hell because of that. There's only one way I can be saved. And folks, when you preach that, nobody will ever get the idea, I help me save me. We'll never get that idea. Now, I'm saved not simply as an act of my will, because I'm dead and I'm totally unable to do anything for salvation. And so I only have one recourse. When you preach this, people will realize I only have one recourse. Plead the forgiveness, the grace, and the mercy of God. And that's the only way that I'll be saved. And folks, that's how salvation comes. And it doesn't come any other way. Now, I'm a Baptist. And I believe in preaching the same message that old-time Baptists preached. I believe in this New Hampshire Confession of Faith because I believe it's an accurate statement of God's Word. And I just wish that Baptists would go back to preaching what old-time Baptists believed and preached. That's what we need today. And so this is the truth of God's Word. It's the profound truth of God's Word. And I promise you this, as long as I'm the pastor, that's what I'm I'm going to preach. It's not going to be any different from that. So if you don't like what you get tonight, you're in for a long haul, folks. A long haul, because this is what I'm going to preach. So praise the Lord for the truths that we find in Ephesians chapter 2. And next week we'll come back and preach part 2 of the sermon. I just dropped in to see what condition my condition is in. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to preach your word tonight. I want to just ask you to just open our hearts, open our eyes to see where we came from and how that we were just totally hopeless except for Jesus Christ, except for your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. And we thank you, Lord, for that because we did not deserve it. You came to us and you gave it to us of your own will, not ours. And we thank you for that. Bless as we sing this invitation hymn tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please